Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. A library that straddles the border between the U.S. and Canada is allowing families separated by the travel ban to reunite. I don't know. The time I was just hugging my parents, I was thinking, I wish I could uh, stop all clocks all over the world. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll learn about the challenges facing these families and the library. We'll also hear the story of a high school dispute that became an immigration struggle for one young East Boston man. Plus, we go behind the scenes to discuss the region's electricity grid. And we'll listen into Middle Eastern music in Western Massachusetts. So more about understanding the melody, the, the lyrics, the meaning, the cultural background of the song, for it to be a really kind of rounded experience about what Arab music really is and where it comes from. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. It was a lunchtime argument among East Boston high school students that quickly fizzled. But what transpired that day in the cafeteria set a series of actions into motion. And three years later, the repercussions are still unfolding for one young man named Orlando. As WBUR's Shannon Doodling reports, his story shows how a seemingly mundane high school argument can have a big impact when reported to federal immigration officials. Our story begins in El Salvador. The small city of Metepan is about a two-hour drive from the Salvadoran capital of San Salvador. It's close to the border with Guatemala. This is where we meet 22-year-old Orlando. It's a hot and humid afternoon, and he wipes sweat from his forehead every now and then. He says it's safer for us to talk at the plaza instead of meeting him at his grandparents' house. So you've been back here since January. What is life like here? Life here is really hard. I can't find a job here. There's nothing. It's really dangerous. There's too much death here and fear. There's a lot of fear. We've agreed to use only his middle name. Orlando fears for his safety in El Salvador and for the safety of his grandparents. Orlando was born in Metepan, but it's never really felt like home. He says he was abandoned by his mother when he was younger and was more or less raising himself much of his life. And that's why he decided to find his dad. He was 17 when he started the journey alone, heading north toward the U.S.-Mexico border and ultimately East Boston. It was awful. I had to travel by land, and it was hard. There was a lot of suffering. I was mistreated a lot along the way. He says he was kidnapped in Mexico and held hostage for almost a month before he escaped, illegally crossing the border near McAllen, Texas. He arrived as an unaccompanied minor in 2014 and was released to his father in Boston. He obtained a special immigrant juvenile visa and applied for a green card. He was working and going to school. He says he felt safe in Boston. I don't know. 
I guess I got used to being with my family. That's what I wanted the most. And then, in 2015, on a Thursday afternoon in November, all of that changed. Um, So as you can see, there's a number of files and folders. Um, You can also see FedEx envelopes uh, that included filings to the Board of Immigration Appeals. Sarah Sherman Stokes opens the top drawer of a filing cabinet in her Boston University Law School office. Sherman Stokes represented Orlando in his immigration proceedings. She thumbs through dozens of folders, all related to Orlando's case. I mean, it, it does feel in some ways like this sort of tomb where, where all the, the papers came to die. Two of these papers, an incident report filed by an East Boston high school police officer, triggered what comes next. The report cited what began as a few students heckling another student in a classroom— The class dismisses and moves into the cafeteria for lunch, at which point a few of the students confront one another. What follows is described in the report as an unsuccessful attempt at starting a fight. One student is cited as saying he heard from friends that some of the young people involved might be part of a gang. According to the report, school police officers reviewed security camera footage. Orlando was identified as one of the students involved. In the report, he's listed as an associate of the gang MS-13. The incident description ends, stating, quote, This incident will also be sent to the BRIC. That's the Boston Regional Intelligence Center. It's a unit of the Boston Police Department that gathers and analyzes intelligence, which is shared with federal law enforcement. Nine months later, Orlando was getting ready to go to work at a nearby Mexican restaurant when he was arrested at his father's home by U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. That two-page school incident report had made its way into what's known as a gang packet, information compiled by Homeland Security Investigations, or HSI. It's unclear how, but Orlando allegedly evolved, in the eyes of authorities, into a verified and active member of MS-13. Those were the classifications printed in all capital letters on the first page of the government's gang packet. Here's Sherman Stokes. The maker of this report is usually a special agent from HSI, and that person's usually not available in court to be cross-examined. One of the problems here is it's, it's a black box. You know, it's not clear to us how this determination that the client is a verified and active member of a street gang, how is that determination made? The government's case also included pictures printed off Orlando's Facebook account. Handwritten notes in the margins and arrows point to details like blue shoelaces and a Chicago Bulls hat as alleged proof of MS-13 affiliation. Orlando, for his part, insists he was never involved with the gang. Sherman Stokes says he has no criminal record. Around this time, East Boston and neighboring communities were experiencing a spike in violent crimes, believed to be associated with organized gang activity— Many of the victims were young men of Central American backgrounds. In January 2016, federal, state, and local law enforcement made arrests throughout Greater Boston, leading to a sweeping indictment of more than 60 alleged MS-13 members and associates. Just last month, one of the members was sentenced to life in connection with the killings of two teenagers in East Boston. The victims had been stabbed dozens of times. Orlando's school incident report was sent to the BRIC by a Boston school police sergeant. 
According to a transcript of immigration court testimony, the officer says he received no specialized training in identifying gang activity, but has learned how to identify gang behavior after years on the job. He goes on to testify that keeping track of gang behavior is a big part of his duties at East Boston High School. School police officers are employees of Boston Public Schools, not the Boston Police Department. In an email, a Boston Public Schools spokesman said the Boston Police Department provides regular training to school police officers on gang activity. Thomas Nolan is a former Boston police gang detective and a professor of criminology. He says he's concerned Boston school police officers are performing more like Boston police, but without the proper training. Boston school police uh, are putting in information into the BRIC database um, that's oftentimes uh, not only inaccurate, but um, they're exceeding the bounds of their authority Nolan also worked for the Department of Homeland Security, the federal agency overseeing regional intelligence centers like the BRIC. He's traveled around the country training law enforcement on the kind of information that should be shared in these databases. We showed him the school incident report alleging Orlando's gang association and describing the incident in the cafeteria. Well, someone receiving this kind of information at the BRIC Um, needs to make an assessment as to whether or not this is appropriately included in the criminal intelligence database. And if this was something that I saw, I would never put this into a criminal intelligence database. The Boston Police Department did not respond to requests for comment. Some Boston school police have exercised their authority off school property, which, according to Boston public school officials, is beyond school police jurisdiction. Six students listed in a Boston school police intelligence report obtained by WBUR were stopped and frisked in 2017 by Boston school police at a dog park in East Boston. The intelligence report was included in one of the federal government's gang packets. It was filed by the same sergeant who alleged Orlando was a gang associate. Nolan now does some work as an analyst, evaluating information for immigration attorneys whose clients have gang packets. He questions whether city leaders are fully aware of the way information flows between Boston school police and federal immigration officials. This city, Boston, represents itself as a sanctuary city. It certainly conveys the idea that its law enforcement agency uh, will not cooperate and facilitate uh, deportations and ICE detentions, when in fact the Boston Regional Intelligence Center is doing just that. WBUR submitted repeated public information requests to Boston Public Schools, asking for details about training for school police and other incident reports that included gang allegations. Despite winning an appeal from the state records office, WBUR received a response from the city of Boston saying the records are part of active litigation and would not be made available. The ACLU of Massachusetts recently sued the Boston Police Department, asking for access to the gang database and citing an uptick in gang allegations being used to keep people in detention and, in some cases, as a basis for deportation. After spending more than a year detained in immigration custody in Boston, Orlando signed his own deportation letter in 2017 against the advice of his lawyer, 
He says he was too depressed to wait out the appeals process behind bars. Sitting in Metepan, Orlando stares out into the plaza, reflecting on his life in Boston. Working and studying and everything. I was doing all that when they grabbed me. My life was ruined. And truthfully, I don't know if I'm ever going to have another opportunity like that. Orlando is still adjusting to his surroundings in El Salvador. He's looking for work, but says he spends most days in the house, just sort of passing time. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Shannon Dooling in Boston. Some people, many of them students, are living in the U.S. with a single-entry visa, and it's very difficult or even impossible to leave the country to see their families and then re-enter the U.S. In recent years, the Trump administration's travel ban has made visitation even harder. With families from these countries barred from entry, it can be years between visits. But there's a library that straddles the border between the U.S. and Canada that offers an unusual way for families to reunite. We have featured the Haskell Free Library and Opera House on our show before. A theater troupe was putting on a cross-border musical there. Now this little library in Derby Line, Vermont, and Stansted, Quebec, has become a space for Iranian families to reunite. Yegana Torbati wrote about this for Reuters, and she joins us now. Welcome to Next. Thank you so much for having me. So in this piece, you focus on two families, and maybe we can start by talking about Shireen Estebanati. Tell me the story. So um, Shirina Sabanati is a, a student in New York City studying engineering. And like many Iranian students, she is here on a single entry visa. And so that means that if she were to leave the borders of the United States, she'd have to apply for another visa to come back in. And there's really no guarantee that that um, would happen quickly enough or at all to enable her to uh, continue her studies. So she's, for all intents and purposes, stuck here. And then because of the travel ban, her parents are basically have zero chance of getting a visa to the United States. And, you know, since the last time she had seen her father, he had had a heart attack. She hadn't been able to leave to, to check on him. And so, you know, she was very much wanting to see both of her parents. And so in August, her parents who had traveled to Canada on Canadian visas and were staying with her sister there in Montreal... They came down to the library on the northern side, and um, Shireen drove up to uh, Vermont from New York, about a six-hour drive, and they basically met at the library over the course of two days. So here's Shireen talking about her reunion with her family at the library in a video that accompanies your piece. Let's listen. I don't know. The time I was just hugging my parents, I was thinking, I wish I could uh, stop all clocks all over the wards. Mm, it's really powerful. What was it like to see these reunions? So um, I didn't witness um, Shireen's family reuniting, but I did witness a couple others in early November just by chance. Um, you know, I decided to go up there myself and saw two families who decided to um, come there that day to reunite. And it's extremely powerful. I mean, they're very emotional moments. You're seeing people seeing each other for the first time in several years. Um, there's you know, immediate tears, um, really long embraces, and just, you know, the sheer pleasure of being in the company of of your mother, your child, um, your brother, your sister, someone you haven't seen in months or years. It was really powerful to witness. So tell us more about the Haskell Free Library and Opera House where these reunions are taking place. It's a very unusual building in an unusual place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a very small library, just a couple reading rooms and a stacks area and sort of a main hallway. 
And it's really um, a relic of this era where the international boundary between the U.S. and Canada was sort of an afterthought. There are these communities that have been there for early in the 20th century, if not longer. And in those days, like they were just sort of almost a like one one town, but just happened to be built across this border. And so there was a local wealthy family that built this library and endowed it and purposefully had it built across the border. And a few years later, I believe that actually became illegal. So this sort of institution was kind of grandfathered in and allowed to operate. But, you know, it's very rare and very unique that an institution open to the public would be built across an international boundary like this. But how exactly does it work with Border Patrol from both the American and the Canadian side? We can all picture the Border Patrol officers that that sit as you're trying to get up to Montreal or back into the United States at, at these almost toll booths. But it's not like that at the Haskell Free Library. Explain exactly how the customs piece of this works. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and it's sort of hard to understand unless you go there yourself. But essentially, there is a port of entry very nearby the Haskell, just a few hundred yards away. And that's an official port of entry. And it really does look almost like a drive through window. It's pretty small operation. But then at the Haskell itself, the the border between the U.S. and Canada is just demarcated by a line of flower pots. And the library is sort of sits kind of like squarely across the border, but its only entrance is on the American side. And so there's basically been an agreement, a, a special dispensation that the library has, whereby um, the Canadians, people entering from Canada can park on the Canadian side, And then they walk on the sidewalk up to the library front door and go in. And then as long as they uh, when they leave the library, they go back to their cars, go back to Canada, then it's all fine. I want to hear from uh, another one of the the people that you profile. This is uh, Sina Dadsatan. He's uh, an Iranian who lives in Canada. His family visited the library so that they could see his sister who lives in the United States. Let's listen. If my parents come next year, and if this travel ban still exists, maybe we do the same thing again. Maybe, because we are not breaking any, any law. This is the, f- the, the only solution we have right now. Um, and if they're going to stop us from this way, we try to find another solution. Is there a sense that someone might want to stop this type of reunion? So, I mean... It's it's a fraught situation, and I heard uh, several stories from people about Border Patrol agents trying to stop them from meeting, telling them that you know it was no longer allowed, chastising a library staff member who allowed one of these families to enter after a Border Patrol agent had told them that they couldn't. You know, the library, the head librarian, told me that both RCMP and Border Patrol had threatened to shut the library down over the visits. Um, RCMP flatly denied that, and U.S. Customs and Border Protection, um, which oversees Border Patrol, uh, didn't directly respond to my questions about that. So the visits are fraught. The library itself, before I ever reported the story, um, had, had issued a formal policy saying that family gatherings are not permitted, and they put signs up throughout the library saying that. But the signs are very easy to overlook, and the families that met there on the day that I was there in early November just hadn't noticed them. And the library staff members allowed the visits to to go forward. So it's sort of this, it's almost like a literal gray zone because it is on the border and it's sort of both Canada and the U.S., but also it's like a gray zone in the sense that they're kind of operating in this quasi-allowed, quasi-not-allowed space. 
And so it sort of remains to be seen if if the visits will be allowed to go forward. But, you know, you saw in that clip with Sina that this is something that these Iranians have turned to out of desperation, out of feeling that they really have no other legal option, that this is their one legal option uh, to be able to see each other. Yegana Trabati is a reporter for Reuters. You can find a link to her story at nextnewengland.org. Yegana, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. While the library is actually on the U.S.-Canada border, the border zone that's patrolled by U.S. Customs and Border Protection is actually quite a bit bigger. In fact, as we've been following, CBP agents are allowed to set up immigration checkpoints within 100 miles of any U.S. border. And that zone includes almost every square mile of New England. Vermont Congressman Peter Welch is working to change this. He co-sponsored legislation to shrink that area down to just 25 miles. Congressman Welch joins us now. Welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. You co-sponsored the Border Zone Reasonableness Restoration Act. How would this act change the zone and how it's patrolled? It would reduce the zone to 25 miles, number one. So there couldn't be a border checkpoint uh, past 25 miles, air miles from the border. That would be number one. Number two, it would reduce the regulation that allows for going onto property within 25 miles down to 10 miles. And number three, it would make it very explicit that the Fourth Amendment would apply to any actions that were taken by the Border Patrol folks. And that's very important because you're, you're concerned about what happens at these checkpoints. Well, I am. I mean, first of all, let's acknowledge that our Border Patrol folks uh, have important responsibilities. But what you're seeing at work here is really the political agenda of the Trump administration, uh, where immigration is being used as a, as a political cudgel, really. And with this dragnet-style enforcement, uh, where literally a 90% of the state of Vermont or two-thirds of the population of the United States, they can arbitrarily be stopped, have sniffing dogs around, they can have uh, show-me-your-papers questions being asked. That's an intrusion into what most of us uh, believe is extremely important to protect privacy, uh, to limit the scope of government, and to have stops, uh, by and large, made on the basis of probable cause. So this is a dragnet approach, and it does a couple of things. One, it has a significant impact on your constitutional rights, and number two, it has a big impact on our economy. You know, Vermont really does depend on the free flow of trade and free flow of people back and forth from our Canadian neighbors with whom we've had excellent relations. And this blanket approach to enforcement, in my view, overreach, will have a real detrimental effect on the movement of goods and services and people going back and forth. So there's a downside that is associated with enforcement that can be too aggressive. I want to play a little tape for you. This is from John Pfeiffer. Uh, Over the summer, he retired from his position as a chief patrol agent for the Border Patrol in the Swanton sector. And this includes the border section in Vermont, also New Hampshire and parts of New York. Uh, Here he is talking with VPR's Henry Epp. You know, I understand people are all about privacy and and, the, and those concerns, but these checkpoints are, are about border security and uh, defense in depth. There's a lot of things that come across the border that we don't detect. And when we set up a checkpoint, you know, within 100 air miles south on these interstates, we locate and, and arrest and seize a lot of things that crossed 
without being detected at the actual border. How do you respond to that argument, Congressman? Well, you know, that argument is when I would expect from the person whose job it is is to detect that and to uh, try to apprehend criminals or people who shouldn't be here. So I, I respect that. But it has to be in the context of respecting constitutional rights and putting it in the larger context of how we live our lives. There's a lot of law-abiding people who are affected with this blanket approach. And the argument that he's making, it has some merit, but it's the same argument that, let's say, a local police officer could use when he or she is trying to apprehend somebody who committed a crime in a neighborhood. They could argue that, hey, we should be able to go into every house and see if that potential burglar is there. We should be able to stop every car and take these actions to achieve the goal of trying to apprehend the criminal. So it's an argument that, on its face, has some merit. But on the other hand, in the implementation, has really significant consequences, by and large, to law-abiding citizens. So how do we get the balance? We respect that officer who's clearly very intent on doing his job for the public benefit with the over-enforcement that has such detrimental impact on the public benefit. So our view in this law is that we're giving a lot of latitude to enforcement, but we're restricting it to 25 miles. You know, where do you put that line right now, 100 miles, where 90% of Vermont is affected? I don't think that's reasonable. So I want to bring it back to something that's more in the range of reason. Congressman Peter Welch represents the state of Vermont in the House of Representatives. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Coming up, a look at the future of our region's electricity grid. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. On our program, we're always talking about the ways in which New England actually acts like one region. One of the biggest, and maybe the most important, is the way our electric system is tied together. ISO New England is in charge of the grid, and they also operate a wholesale electricity market to make sure there's always power available. It's a system built on already dizzying complexity in an energy ecosystem that's getting more complex, adding new power from renewables all the time. But when we read Bruce Mole's article for Commonwealth Magazine with the attention-grabbing headline, Regions Electricity Market in Trouble, well, that caught our eye. So we invited him and NHPR's energy and environment reporter Annie Ropeek to help demystify this important but complicated market that keeps electricity flowing in New England. I started off by asking Bruce to describe what exactly ISO New England does and what it is. Well, that's a big question. It stands for Independent System Operator New England, and it's the organization, a rather large organization based in Holyoke, that is in charge of making sure the power goes on when we flip our switch, basically. And that's an easy, uh, simplified answer, but it's a complicated process about how they go about doing that. They have to make sure that we have enough power being produced in the region, and they have to make sure that that power gets to people at the right time and the right situations. They also run a bunch of markets to make this process work in a market-oriented way. And by that, I mean they're trying to get companies to compete against each other to provide electricity in the market. 
and they're going to take revenue out of the market to the cover their costs and make a profit. That's sort of, in a nutshell, what they do. So, Andy, you, you cover energy in New Hampshire, but also in the New England region. What are the things about how ISO New England works that you think is, is important for our listeners to know, the things that it's important for us to understand so that we get exactly the complexities of how electricity gets into our homes? Yeah, well, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? I mean, this I'm really glad we're having this conversation because— as I've gotten into the energy beat, I've come to understand that this is one of those areas that is really purposefully opaque. I mean, it is designed in not a very, you know, forward-facing, customer-facing way, uh, and it, it keeps people, you know, kind of from understanding the process fully, and that, that's somewhat by design. I mean, it, this is a capitalist system, and so it's designed to, you know, in some ways profit off of consumers and also to provide them with power, but, you know, it's not necessarily in the interest of all the players here for everyone to understand exactly how their rates are being set, you know, to be frank. And so so ISO is one of the most important players in that very opaque system. They, you know, are responsible for figuring out where that next megawatt or the next electrons that are going to come to your house, your factory, or your school, where those are going to come from. And so one thing I think that's so interesting about ISO and about other groups like ISO around the country is that they're supposed to be sort of agnostic to the type of fuel that they're bringing into the mix. So whether it's coal or solar or hydropower, big hydro, small hydro, you know, they're not supposed to really care about that. They're not supposed to be political. Um, they're not supposed to really be interested in certain state policies or subsidies or lack thereof. They're just supposed to care about keeping the lights on and doing it in the you know most cost-effective and reliable way. And actually, reliable comes first. And so if they feel like, as they do right now, that the system has reliability issues, that you know we could be at a risk of not having enough power to satisfy that next hour's demand. So right now they feel like we are coming up on that situation the way that sort of infrastructure and demand are going in the region. And they are working on these really big, really confusing changes that will trickle down to customers' bills and increase them. And they're doing all of this in the name of reliability, but there's a lot of debate around what reliability really is and, and, you know, how much risk consumers, different kinds of consumers are willing to tolerate, how much they're willing to pay to avert that risk. And, you know, ISO is one of the people kind of pulling the strings on that question in a way that's not very, you know, doesn't involve a ton of public input. So, Bruce, this is fascinating because here's an organization that, as Annie said, is not supposed to be playing politics. They're supposed to be trying to keep our lights on and providing the most reliable service. But the constraints that they're talking about, the problems with reliability they see coming right now and down the road are concerning things like whether or not we're going to build gas pipelines, whether or not we're going to have nuclear power plants, whether or not we're going to build more renewables or have long-throw transmission lines to get power down from Canada. Each one of those things, Bruce, seem very, very political and very politically fraught. So then what happens next? It's a bit of a hodgepodge right now because the market, and I keep coming back to this because that's what ISO New England runs. It runs a market, and it's been extremely efficient over the last decade, I'd say, maybe even more, partly because natural gas has been so cheap. So natural gas came into the region. A lot of power plants were built that run on natural gas, and it backed out uh, a lot of uh, coal and oil plants, and it, now even nuclear plants are in, in danger. Because it was cheap, the market was ruthlessly efficient about that. And we also gained because natural gas was a cleaner-burning, low-emission fuel than coal and oil. 
But now states across New England have these targets for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And the problem is the market doesn't really know how to deal with that because building an offshore wind farm off the coast or building a transmission line to bring hydropower from Canada, it costs a great deal of money to do that up front. But down the road, in operating sense, it's almost free because the wind is free and the water going over the dam is free. So how does a market deal with that that's been sort of set up to, well, it can't deal with that, let's put it that way, because these plants want to come in and make a ton of money. They need a ton of money to get up and running, and the market doesn't see the need for that because you still have all these gas power plants that can operate at get up and running faster at lower cost, but they have this fossil fuel component. So what the states have done is said, okay, if the market's not going to provide it, we're going to go out and do it ourselves. So Massachusetts ratepayers themselves are going out to do offshore wind projects, and they're trying to buy hydropower from Canada. And this is outside the market. So in a, in a sense, you have two markets sort of going on at the same time. One is states trying to bring in renewables to meet their greenhouse gas emission targets. And then this other market that is trying to operate just to keep the lights on. And the challenge for the ISO is how do you blend these two markets together and make them work efficiently. And one other big problem that's sort of hanging around in this situation is, yes, we built all these natural gas power plants, and this sort of assumption that there would always be enough gas to run them. And in fact, there is enough gas, at least for the foreseeable future, to run it, but we don't have the pipeline capacity to bring it in. So at certain times when the temperature is very cold in the winter and a lot of the gas is diverted to heating homes, these power plants run into problems in keeping operating. And the long story short is you have a plant here in Everett, Massachusetts that runs on natural gas, but it runs on liquefied natural gas that comes into an adjacent facility next door. And ISO would like to keep that plant running because... It runs on gas that comes in not via pipeline, but by ship. But the plant is, is, it can't compete in the market. Its prices are too high. Its costs are too high. And so they're getting permission to spend a lot of money to keep them operating when they can't compete in the market. The market seems to be unraveling for the way it has operated because of all these competing concerns you know, at some point you think everybody's got to get together and figure out a way out of this. So far, that hasn't happened. And one of the reasons, Annie, that that hasn't happened is because the Commonwealth of Massachusetts has an outsized role in all this. They're the most populous state in this region. They have the biggest power needs. And in many ways, they're calling the shots. I'm wondering from the vantage point of someone who covers energy in New Hampshire, what this means to to the northern New England states, how they're viewing this, this problem differently than what's happening down in Mass. Yeah, it's super interesting. I mean, the interplay between the, you know, the political approach to energy and also just the the grid-based approach to running the grid across six states with very different power needs, very different power desires, you know, that is is incredibly complicated and it's, you know, 
almost an impossible task for ISO. It's just a balance that they have to try to strike every day. And, you know, New Hampshire really prides itself on not following states like Massachusetts on every policy that they put forth. New Hampshire doesn't like to sort of just do what everyone else in the region is doing. And we've really seen that come to bear on on things like solar development. You know, New Hampshire really lags behind states like Vermont and Mass on new megawattage of solar, on um, just policies to expand use of renewable energy. New Hampshire is very opposed to subsidies, or I should say our our current governor's administration is very opposed to any kind of subsidy for renewable energy, wants them to compete on their own merits, which they're starting to be able to do. But as we're seeing, you know, a lot of these legacy fuels have their own kinds of subsidies that are really baked into the system. And so the idea that there's a free market for energy that exists out there is a little bit of a fallacy. I think I've probably said that before on this program. That's one of the biggest things I've learned as an energy reporter that's important to know. And, you know, I think when Bruce says that the wholesale market is kind of collapsing in on itself, one way to look at that is that about 20 years ago, we finished this process called deregulation, where we basically said that Companies like Eversource, for example, that own the poles and wires that get the power to your house, they can't also own power plants. So we separated the generation from the transmission. That was deregulation. A lot of people see these steps toward putting plants like the gas plant that Bruce mentioned back kind of on ISO's watch. You know, they see that as a step against deregulation, as a step back towards a more sort of self-controlled, less independent, less um, competitive energy market. And, you know, that was what we set out to do with deregulation years ago. And and a lot of people are concerned that that's going to make it harder for ISO to allow state policies and the idea of the free market to kind of work together harmoniously, and it's going to put them more at odds. Okay. Well, Bruce, how do we get to, in your mind, a system that seems to work in a more unified way and that also takes into account just the changes in the overall market. People are moving toward a more renewable energy economy, and it seems as though the system that we have in place right now isn't set up to accept those changes. I think you're right to a certain extent about that. And so what you're seeing is states increasingly going it alone. As Annie said, 20 years ago, we used to have regulation, where regulators decided what plants would get built and how much we would pay for them. We're moving back to that now, where Massachusetts decides we're going to have a, an offshore wind farm, and our customers are going to pay this amount for it. Now, everybody raved about the price on that contract, but it's a 20-year contract. And it's interesting to note that If at 10 years, some great new technology comes along that just beats the pants off of offshore wind in terms of price and environmental benefits, we're still stuck with a 20-year contract. And that's what we deregulated to get away from, that ratepayers are at risk. And so I think where we're headed is that more and more, either states or ISO or the federal government are going to start dictating what plants get built, what plants get supported economics-wise by, from ratepayers, and we're going to move back to that regulated environment. I think that's going to be increasingly the case as time goes by. Bruce Mole is editor of Commonwealth Magazine and author of a recent article, Regions Electricity Market in Trouble. You can find a link to it on nextnewengland.org. Bruce, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be here. Thank you. And thanks to Annie Ropeek, energy and environment reporter for NHPR and the New England News Collaborative. As always, Annie, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Coming up, we'll listen in to Middle Eastern music in Western Mass. 
It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Funding also comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York, and the Melville Charitable Trust. In a Western Massachusetts newspaper a few months back, a little announcement mentioned the startup of a Middle Eastern music group. No auditions were necessary, just an interest, an instrument, and a willingness to be directed. New England Public Radio's Jill Kaufman has our story. Let's do the last two times with the refrain. The groups had formal rehearsals every other week since early October, mostly in this house in Northampton, where all the couches and chairs are up against the walls in order to fit about 20 musicians. Arabic music is traditionally played in a takht, a small ensemble that may include a singer, someone on percussion, an oud, which is a short-necked lute, a kanun, an 80-string instrument sometimes held on your lap, and a nai, which is a wooden flute. All those are here, plus some other instruments like accordions, guitars, an upright bass, and many singers. These people of varying musical skill are working with a young and very much in demand musician named Leith Sadiq. And actually, I didn't expect to have this big group. 26-year-old Sadiq was born in Iraq and raised in Jordan. He also teaches at Tufts and leads other Arabic music ensembles. This fall, he and his violin have flown off to Switzerland, Spain, and San Antonio to perform. So why is he driving out to Western Mass every two weeks? It's not about the money. He feels a responsibility. So more about understanding the melody, the, the lyrics, the meaning, the cultural background of the song, for it to be a really kind of rounded experience about what Arab music really is and where it comes from. Several people here have studied with Sadiq before, but had to haul themselves to Eastern Mass to work with him. And uh, it was great, but the drive was, you know, horrible. If anyone can be called the founder of this ensemble, it's Sharon Arslanian, whose house we're in. Her instrument is the Nai. After six or so years, she still calls herself a beginner. Arslanian spent a career teaching dance at Greenfield Community College. She says she first fell in love with Arabic music when she was a dance major in college and went in search of something more than modern dance and ballet. Belly dancing, all the rage in the 70s, was also a way to make some money. I was just a natural at it, and I, that led me into working in nightclubs. So that's how I got started, hearing the music. And decades later, Arslanian was the one who asked Sadiq to essentially turn this group of teachers and home health care aides and engineers and electricians into a cohesive ensemble. Only one singer really speaks Arabic, Sayanora Timon, an Arabic teacher at two colleges in the area, and she took it upon herself to help out her fellow singers. So this is the ha letter, so... The ensemble has several musicians who also play klezmer, a style of Jewish music that originated in Eastern Europe, including Peggy Davis, who plays flute. So I love hearing the connections in music. There was a time when Jewish musicians from Romania went to Turkey and Istanbul. They learned the music there. They came back. It got very popular and it spread throughout Eastern Europe. 
Music's ability to travel across borders has not gone unobserved in this crowd, says Timon, who was born in Egypt. Usually Arabs will not sit with Jews, for example, okay, because of the problems in the Middle East and the politics and stuff. But here, you think that you're all one family and you start to think, oh, you know what's in common, more than what's making us fight all the time. Uh, let's do kind of the oud playing that. Only a few of the musicians own the complexities of the half flats and the half sharps of the Arabic music scale. But the biggest challenge at this point is getting everyone to slow down. Have you ever ridden a camel before? <laughs> For a camel to stop and sit down, Sadiq tells them it really takes a while. Sudik, who was initially trained on classical violin, told the group a story about how he was taught to play every note. Makes sense to most in the room. But when Sudik began playing Arabic music professionally, he was told, don't play every note. Arslanian says when the ensemble heard that, most of them drew a huge sigh of relief. It's a different kind of music because it's based on one melody that everybody's playing It's not on harmony. Though you do need to learn how to weave in and out of that melody. This ensemble may just naturally master another characteristic of Arabic music, which doesn't measure itself in technical perfection, but in feeling. Tarab refers to the state of ecstasy you might experience when listening or playing. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jill Kaufman. We're going to end this week's show in a barbershop. It may just seem like a place to get a haircut, but in many places around the world, barbershops are safe spaces for men to form relationships outside of cultural expectations. The Barbershop Chronicles, a show playing now at the American Repertory Theater in Boston, takes you on a journey inside barbershops across the globe. Ariel Gray from WBUR has our story. Barbara Isaac Genty cuts his son's hair at Headlines, a black-owned barbershop in Cambridge. He's telling a story about his father. My dad was a barber for 50 years. 50? My dad. He's retired now. I'm with Inua Elams, the playwright of the Barbershop Chronicles, now playing at ART. This is the Nigerian playwright's first time in an American barbershop. But over the last few years, Elams has visited many barbershops in several African countries and the U.K., analyzing how men interact with each other. Barbershops are naturally theatric places. They're just open to conversation for men to hold court and talk at length and tell the most ridiculous, crazy stories. Elams feels that spaces like headlines are integral to the formation of healthy relationships between men. He believes barbershops stand as a place where men can display vulnerability and seek advice from each other. There are not other many spaces safe spaces where men, specifically black men, can gather in large numbers without um, um, criticisms or the critical eye. The idea for the Barbershop Chronicles began to bloom a decade ago, after Elam saw an advertisement in England, promoting a program training barbers in counseling. I was surprised that conversations in barbershops could get so intimate that clients could be safe about potential mental health and problems, such that uh, uh, you know, a psychologist thought the barbers should be trained on how to deal with intimate conversation. The Barbershop Chronicles tells the interconnecting stories of black men living in various African countries in the United Kingdom, showing these men in the barbershop where they can open up 
highlights the nuances of black masculinity, which is also riddled with many dangerous stereotypes. The play sort of goes lengths to accept all of those stereotypes and deconstruct them and demystify them in the most traditional and simple ways, which is just by seeing these men on stage, talking, laughing, eating, talking about their relationships, the things they believed and the things they disagree with. Elms uses music to transport the audience to the different locations in the play. A change in the music genre cues the audience to the scene change. That's Ghanaian performer Echo Korti, one of the actors in the play. For Korti, the intergenerational conversation woven throughout the Barbershop Chronicles is somewhat reflective of his own relationship with his father. And you never spoke about how he felt when he lost his mom, how he felt when he lost his sister. But the fact that there exists a space in a barbershop where young men can watch older men being honest about things, laughing, joking. Lance Woodson, the owner of Headlines, also turned to barbershops in his youth as a place to learn and connect with older black men. The communion ground is a barbershop because everybody needs a haircut. And when they go there, we talk, laugh, joke, talk trash, some sad news, some, some good news. But it's always news. No matter what it is, it's always news. Woodson hopes the play encourages people to go into barbershops to form these connections with each other. For Elms and Corti, these connections that are formed help us truly see each other. Human beings are far more complicated than, than um, the covers and the caricatures we put on them. And that, given space, there is a lot to be learned from each other. Perhaps the world can be changed, one haircut at a time. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Arielle Gray. The Barbershop Chronicles is playing at the American Repertory Theater in Boston until January 5th. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. If you enjoy the show, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. And you can follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Our show is produced by Lily Tyson, executive producer is Katie Talarski, and the digital producer is Carlos Mejia. We had help this week from Andrew Perella, Lear Johansson, and Robert Frazier. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. Next is powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, The Publix Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.